podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This week on Red Inca, we look at Major League Cricket and cricket in the USA. And for that, we got on a born and bred cricket writer from the USA. I'm Peter Delapena. I'm the U.S. correspondent for ESPN Cricket Info, and I also host my own podcast, the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast. On this episode, we talk about money, recruiting, and Liam Plunkett, air hogs, stadiums, corruption, the history of U.S. cricket, and how Boris Karloff was a wicketkeeper. Sir, may you please start by explaining what is Major League Cricket? I don't even know if Major League Cricket knows what Major League (laughs) Cricket is, to be perfectly honest, Jared. But I'll give it a shot. It is the franchise competition that is being organized by ACE, American Cricket Enterprises, which is the commercial partner for the USA Cricket, which is the national governing body that took over the administration of U.S. Cricket after USACA was expelled. And it is supposed to launch in another two years, the six-team franchise competition, which is being modeled on the CPL, IPL, international standard franchise model. But in the meantime, they've organized what they see as the pathway to major league cricket, which is minor league cricket, kind of copying off of the standard terminology that you would hear in other American professional sports. And that is going in its current first season with 27 teams all around the country. And that final for that competition, which has been running throughout the summer, will take place in North Carolina in the first weekend in October. Who is funding Major League Cricket and ACE? I mean, there has to be money behind it because everyone's moving over there. Well, the chief backers are the people who, yeah, have got all the purse strings are two gentlemen, Vijay Srinivasan and Samir Mehta, who founded Willow TV. For people outside of the USA who don't know what Willow TV is, Willow TV has been around for about 20 years now, and it's the number one outlet for cricket rights and cricket broadcasting in the US. So started off as a web platform, and you would just go on to willowtv.com or willow.tv, whatever it is, and uh, you would pay... At one time, the annual subscription was, I believe, $200 a year. And you could also pay on a pay-per-view series basis. And so something like The Ashes was, I think, like $60 pay-per-view for the whole series. A World Cup package, I remember I paid for the 2007 World Cup through Will, and I think that was $200 to $250. Other series, India-Pakistan, back when India and Pakistan used to be a series, (laughs) you would pay anywhere from $60 to $100. But as it got more and more popular over the years, they went from being a web-only based service to also having a terrestrial cable channel that you could get on various cable providers that are subscription-based around the U.S., whether it's Time Warner Cable or Cablevision or Comcast or any number of other providers. They started to offer a channel, like you could watch like ESPN or any other channel for that matter. And that was put out, I believe, at $10 a month. And when that happened, then they brought their online package in line with that because the demand was there. You've got this 
mythical figure of 15 to 20 million or 30 million or by next week, Jared, by the time this podcast airs, it could be up to 40 or 50 million cricket fans around America who are consuming all this content. And so the, the demand was there to bring the prices down. So again, back when I got into cricket in 2005, 2006, you were paying very, very high prices for pay-per-view cricket content. But now Willow is a very affordable package at uh, $9 a month or $10 a month online. And you can get the annual pass, I think, for, for $60 a year. I'm, I'm giving my best uh, shill sales pitch for, for Willow TV at the moment. I didn't realize you went for Willow until this very moment. <laughs> I, I, you know, I would have got the guys from Willow on if I don't this. So, so they're, they're the main sort of people backing it. And then you've got... To get back to your original question, they're generating all this revenue. That's where they're getting yeah. all the revenue from. They're getting all this gotcha. money from the subscription that they founded in the early 2000s. And they become multimillionaires off of this. And so then they sold Willow TV to Times of India, but they still maintained jobs for Willow TV. So they, they sold it, they made money off of it, they still work as, as principals for Willow TV. And all of that money that they generated is what they used to become commercial rights partners. And Samir and Vijay in particular are the ones who are bankrolling all these offers to rope in all these cricketers from overseas, ex-professionals or franchise professionals who are now moving to the USA to increase their bank accounts and their lifestyles by uh, playing cricket in America. But there's also like bigger names as well. Like uh, Shah Rukh Khan is apparently going to be owning, is it the Los Angeles Knight Riders, which hopefully David Hasselhoff comes to every game. You know, and is there not a few other Silicon Valley chief executives and chairmen and owners uh, that are loosely involved, if nothing else, in it as well? They put out a big fancy press release however many months ago, pumping up what they've got going on. And yeah, you had Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, who was involved. You've got, I believe, the CEO of Adobe. And he's probably going to be very upset that I know Satya Nadella's name and not his name. You've got other big names in the tech industry yeah, based in Silicon Valley or other very prominent South Indian businessmen. One of them, again, for example, he's a partner of the heir to the Perot, Atros Perot dynasty. And so he's, I believe, based in Texas and he's an investor in, I believe, what he wants to own the Dallas-based franchise there. But most of the money, it's all South Asian American money, any of these businessmen who are based in Silicon Valley, that's who is investing into the ownership stake of the league. This is not the first time, obviously, that someone has tried to make money off USA cricket. Neil Maxwell, who was involved in the original IPL and Champions League, was involved with Cricket New Zealand. Am I remembering that, that right? There's obviously been forays into America and Canada with international games. There's the Shane Warne games, the CPL not to mention the fact that Crick Info started in America as well. So there's certainly been movements towards cricket in America at times, but as far as leagues go, they've all kind of died in the arse, haven't they? This is the El Dorado. This is the land of, of magical riches, America. And yeah, if anybody who has read the book Netherland, Netherland is really based off of real life experiences. Joseph O'Neill, the author, is the vice president of Staten Island Cricket Club. And I played against Staten Island Cricket Club in New York and New Jersey League competition. And after the game, we'll be sitting there drinking beers and having their food spread, which is one of the best in America for any club cricket match spread. I, I can vouch for that. And you talk to the members of the club there and they 
vouch for the fact that almost everything in that book that is related to the cricket part of the plot is drawn from real life experiences in New York, New Jersey league cricket, and another national forays for launching things. The whole character of Chuck Ramkissoon. You can envision him. I've probably met five or six Chuck Ramkissoons in my own cricket career around the U.S. in terms of these schemers and dreamers who have these grand visions of basically all these get-rich-quick schemes. American cricket has been one massive get-rich-quick scheme ever since I've been involved, since 2009 when I started to cover American cricket. And I'm sure it was like that well before I got involved too. And you see people who look at the South Asian diaspora in the USA and they just get these cartoonish dollar signs that mm. light up in their eyes. And, and that's all they can think about. There's no real thought to grassroots development, to get in the game into local cricket communities. There's lots of lip service paid to that. But in terms of meaningful efforts to actually do the hard work and make significant long-term investment, it's just lip service. All people care about when they see USA, and this is at... ICC level, going back to however many press release quotes throughout the 2000s and 2010s, and whether that's at domestic level with fly-by-night investors, all they think about is there's all these rich South Asians. So there's that Columbia University study where 70% of the cricket fan base in the U.S. is high-earning, highly educated. Uh, 70% of them have got a minimum of a, a postgraduate degree, a master's or a PhD or whatever. They're all earning six figures in that 70% bracket. So why not cash in on that? And so you'll get these schemes like the Shane Warren, Sachin Tendulkar Cricket All-Stars Tour. You'll get a league going back to 2004, 2005, which was pro cricket, which was one of the first of these T20 attempted franchise leagues. That was the first league that had five ball overs. Everybody thinks the 100 is so innovative with five <laughs> ball overs. Well, pro cricket actually was the first. You have... Attempts with this American Premier League, which is attempting to be launched this summer with a businessman named Jay Mir. Well, he actually attempted that the first time around in 2008 and never got off the ground. Like you mentioned, the Neil Maxwell, Rajiv Podar, New Zealand Cricket Partnership in 2010, 2011, 2012, that Neil Maxwell had proposed, well, because the turf wicket infrastructure is so poor in the U.S. and almost non-existent, we're going to launch our league with artificial wickets. And that's how we're going to make our money. We can just uh, standardize, make it consistent on artificial wickets. We don't. We can take the pitch out of the equation. And nobody bought into that. And that idea fizzled out very quickly. Which is funny because we now are moving towards artificial wickets in things like the 100. So to be fair to Neil Maxwell, when he couldn't make it work, that was about the time where I went, do you know what? He's one of the smartest people I've ever met in cricket. He really gets it. He really understands associate cricket. You know, he's worked around the world. Did he play for Fiji or something like something yes. randomly? Do you know what I mean? And really smart guy. I'm sure I'll get him on this podcast one day to talk about his life in cricket. When he couldn't even get close, I was like, I just think this is a black hole. I just think that people are going to be tilting at this windmill forever and it's never going to happen. Well, Neil Maxwell, quick anecdote on that. I'll never forget. I met with him in Florida when he came around one year for, I forget if it was West Indies versus New Zealand matches or if it was the West Indies Sri Lanka matches. I met him in either 2010 or 2012 and talked to him briefly. And then I met with him further in Willamaloo. I forget where we were. It was in Sydney. 
I was on a trip with my fiance. I just got engaged in Australia with my fiance. We took a trip there, and that's where I proposed to her. And then coming back from where we were going around Australia, I met with Neil Maxwell. I, I had arranged to meet with him prior to the trip. And so I met with him, and uh, Stuart McGill was there. He was having a meal with Stuart McGill. And Stuart McGill had done some odds and ends in the U.S. with some coaching stuff. So he was somewhat familiar with the U.S., but I, I sit with Neil Maxwell. And at this point, he was kind of frustrated. This was September 2011. And his grand plans weren't quite moving along at the speed which he anticipated that they would move along. But he was still persisting. And he asked me, or I asked him, what makes you think this plan is going to succeed? Because there are a lot of people who have tried and failed in the past. And you know, what makes you think you're just going to come in and wave a magic wand and make it very differently? And he says to me, I'll never forget this. He says, well, Gladstone, speaking of Gladstone Dainty, the infamous USAC president, he says, he says, well, I've talked with Gladstone and he seems like a reasonable guy. So I don't see why this shouldn't work. And it was very clear to me then that Neil Maxwell had no grasp of the nature of the beast that is mm. U.S. cricket because Gladstone Dainty seems like a reasonable guy in person. And I have had very reasonable conversations with him as well. He's a very charming guy. But beyond that, Gladstone Dainty is the number one person most responsible for holding back cricket in America with various administrative policies and obstructive attempts to just basically further cricket in America. And he's the main reason why USA Cricket Association was suspended three times in the, in the decade of the 2000s and into the 2010s and why they were eventually expelled. And so the fact that Neil Maxwell was kind of naive to that, mm. despite all the amazing accomplishments that Neil Maxwell has, has done in his very illustrious career as an agent and as a cricket administrator, it just shows me you can be as smart as you want and have accomplished as much as you have outside of USA and Australia and England and India with the IPL. That really doesn't account for much when you come to the USA because it, it is just a very, very different beast and a very unique cricket ecosystem. And even the people who are involved with Major League Cricket now, who similarly have come from experience in the IPL, Australia, England, the administrators, the people who are helping run minor league cricket and Major League Cricket, I think they're starting to get a taste of that now and understanding that you can't apply the same principles and policies mm. and, and tactics running a league in a fully professionalized setup and expect the same results and success to work in the USA. Yeah, all politics is local, I think is the, uh, the best way of looking at that. There is a joke in cricket that we started protecting our testicles 100 years before we put on helmets. I'm not here to give you a history lesson on the cricket box and its invention, but this is a generally true statement. So that means as cricketers, we are more focused on protecting our downstairs than our head. And yet when so many of us shave our balls, we do it with a crude implement made for trimming a beard. Well, Manscaped are here to make sure, like the Cricket Box did 100 years ago, that our balls are completely looked after. Manscaped have the Lawnmower 4.0, a stunning device that trims your pubes like a delicate late cut. Well, without the actual cutting, I suppose. And I have used this, so you're going to have to trust me when I say this is a shockingly good piece of kit. And maybe this is for another time the story, but a man who has injured himself down there and had to go to hospital to get to the whole area fixed. I'm glad that there's something that feels a lot safer. 
Huge thanks to Manscaped for making the Lawnmower 4.0 and also for giving us a discount code. So get 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code REDINCA at manscaped.com. Come on now, 20% off, free shipping. Manscaped.com, REDINCA, you get it. Thanks to the ICC regulations, you can no longer use saliva on your balls, but you can use Manscaped. Let's go back a little bit before everyone thought they could make a lot of money. Just very briefly, Cricket was quite big in the USA, what, in the 1700s, 1800s? George Washington is alleged to have played a game. It obviously, it spawns baseball, you know, and baseball sort of comes off a, you know, similar sport that moves differently, but they're very related. They call them batters in baseball, but they used to call them batsmen and all that sort of stuff. You then have the Philadelphia cricket scene in uh, where they had uh, up until, what, 1910, 1920, very strong cricket scene in Philadelphia. After that, it just seems to completely disappear. Does cricket keep going or is it a little bit like Ireland where it's almost underground or does it almost disappear completely in the 20th century? You have pockets that have always thrived and existed. So like you said, Philadelphia, New York was always a major hotbed of cricket and whether that was through 1844 when the first internationals played between USA and Canada. That is always a, a trivia question. People bring up the cricket aficionados that USA cricket and Canada cricket, USA versus Canada existed 33 years before the Ashes. Well, not just that. It was the first international sporting event, wasn't it? Which the yacht fans hate because they claim it's not a real sporting event so they can have theirs. But fuck you, yacht fans. We were there first. <laughs> there you go. That's USA's claim to fame. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so in New York, Philadelphia, California. If you look at the Hollywood Cricket Club and the Hollywood yeah. Cricket scene, it's always revolved around basically the diaspora and the immigration patterns of the time. So Hollywood Cricket Club was founded essentially by Hollywood actors who were all these British and Australian actors who wanted to have something to do leisurely and socially to pass the time. Boris Karloff was their wicketkeeper, wasn't he? That Frankenstein was their wicketkeeper. Isn't that their big claim to fame of the Hollywood Cricket Club? That and C. Aubrey Smith, who also yeah. was a Hollywood actor who was a former England Test cricketer. He was a charter member and David Niven mm. and I want to say Errol Flynn. I'm not sure if Errol Flynn was in the club, but I'm pretty sure he was around. Yes. Isn't there great old footage of one of the Australian teams coming back from an Ashes, maybe with Bradman and the Hollywood Cricket Club filming some of it? So, like, they were a major thing that also uh, there was a lot of Australian teams who stopped in Philadelphia as well back in the day, if they, if they came back via America. And even, again, so this continues throughout the 20th century. You had this famous picture of Don Bradman with Babe Ruth yep. in New York. You have... Plenty of stories and photographs and, and evidence in Staten Island, specifically at the Staten Island Cricket Club, where in the 1960s, Fred Truman would come through with Yorkshire or, or touring England side. Jeffrey Boycott has played there uh, Staten Island. You have had Gary Sobers has played at Staten Island Cricket Club and other famous West Indian touring sides of the 60s and 70s and 80s. You would have West Indian touring sides and Indian touring sides come through New York City and play combined USA 11 or USA All-Star 11, however it would be marketed. And they would play in Shea Stadium, where the New York Mets would play. They would wait for the baseball season to end. So if it was a West Indies tour or an England tour and they were touring through on the way back, they would wait until kind of September, late September, early October, when the baseball season would finish. So they wouldn't be interfering with the baseball schedule. You would have... Again, uh, West Indies touring sides, late 80s, early 90s, you could find scorecards of, of basically a full West Indies 11 playing in Mount Vernon, New York, 
or in Randall's Island in early 90s with Laura Walsh, Ambrose, Bishop, all the guys who were part of the test side. But but it was labeled as a West Indies 11. So it wasn't mm. technically an, an official international match. So they didn't have to pay and go through the, the proper ICC protocols of proper match fees. So instead of like getting a paycheck, they would just pass around a brown paper bag stuffed with cash. And that would be their payment for the day. And they would draw crowds. You would get 15, 20, 25,000 people to Shea Stadium. You would get to the matches in New York, whether it's at Floyd Bennett Field or Randall's Island or in Mount Vernon. In Mount Vernon, if people don't know, it's essentially the Bronx on the board of the Bronx and the five boroughs. You'll get 10, 15,000 people to watch the West Indies. And who are the people who are coming to these games? Whether it's in L.A. or New York, who's coming? It's all the immigrant diaspora, the expats, okay? Because, and again, at that time for context, it's not like 2021 where you can just turn on Willow or go, go to any other outlet online and just watch mm. international cricket on your computer or on your TV. There was no internet. So unless you had a long wave radio and you could get the broadcast via radio, there was no way to, to see any of these matches. So part of the reason why these matches sold so well in terms of the local promoters was that people who had, had left their homeland five years, 10 years earlier, this was like a rare opportunity for them to go see these people in person. And regardless of the fact that they were playing on garbage facilities or, or makeshift facilities in New York or whatever, where it might not necessarily be a, a turf wicket, you went because you wanted to see these guys. And that was the draw card. So over the years, historically, cricket has continued to sustain and survive, not necessarily grow organically. Again, the grassroots scene was scant to non-existent, but you still had the strength or weakness of U.S. cricket and its popularity and its viewership, for lack of a better word, in person or online, has always been dependent upon the immigrant patterns of America. In the 30s, it was very heavily Australian and British. And even going back to the 1960s, 1965, when, when USA Cricket Association was first founded, if you look at scorecards on Cricket Archive, a good chunk of the players who represented USA in the 60s in the very first kind of official internationals for USA going past the era of 1844 to 1965, there were still a lot of British and Australian players who were representing USA, as well as a lot of West Indians. And then that started to shift. By the time the ICC trophy came around, USA participated in their first ICC trophy tournament in 1979, in 82 and 86 in England. The national squad makeup started to shift. The very first captain of USA was Anil Lashkari. And Anil Ashkari was a former first-class cricketer from Gujarat who moved to Los Angeles. He captained USA at the 1979 ICC Trophy. And his son, Neil Ashkari, he was born in Leeds, but he grew up from six months old in Los Angeles. He was one of your, like, what you would call an American cricketer, right? And he's a lovely guy. I think he's a real estate appraiser in Los Angeles. And you would have guys like that. There was a Sri Lankan uh, gentleman in the team who was a doctor who who played for Sri Lanka, migrated. Um, there are a lot of other players in the team who were either West Indian or South Asian. And then through the 80s and into the 90s, again, the team started to shift to be almost entirely West Indian through the 80s and 90s and early 2000s. And then when the dot-com boom happened in the late 90s, early 2000s, then that's when the, the really true influx of South Asian migration came not just to America, but it also influenced the cricket community as well. So you went from having a very West Indian-dominated team to starting to have the South Asian influence seep into the team. And now, whether that's the ace investor money or, like you said, Shah Rukh Khan and other investors, 
the administrative and financial and on the field playing element of USA is very, very heavily South Asian immigrant dominated. And I mean, one thing that you and I know is that there is money in American cricket. So like even this podcast, I think we have 15% of our views uh, or listens come from that uh, YouTube channels around the same. Crick Info memories around what, 12% to 15% USA audience. And as I said before, it was founded by expats in the US. You've just talked about earlier the Willow TV guys getting rich. So you can't get rich unless there's an audience. Now, we do need to talk about the audience here. So the last number that you were making fun of on Twitter was someone saying that there are 30 million US cricket fans. I mean, I've been to a lot of Indian Pakistan games. So to be fair, almost everyone seems to have flown over from America for those games more often than not. But even then, I'm guessing there's probably 1 million hardcore fans that actually care about cricket. And there's probably another three to four to five million who know about cricket, occasionally watch their favorite team, maybe tune in for a World Cup or the Ashes or India or Pakistan, depending on their ethnicity. And that's about it. I'm willing to cap that at five or six million people who have an interest in cricket at the very top end. Yeah, and even that, I think, is very generous of you, Jared. I'm a generous man. You know this. <laughs> I'd love to know how some of these figures are documented when these surveys come out, claiming 15 to 20 million to 30 million people. And my general assumption is that they just count literally every warm body, male, female, child, whatever, who is from or in some way tangentially tied to the Commonwealth diaspora. So if yeah. you have any heritage whatsoever... I don't even know if I'm considered it part of that 30 million people, you know, Jared. You know. I, 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 yeah, I don't think I am. <laughs> if you've got South Asian ethnic ties, British, Australian ethnic ties, South African ethnic ties, West Indian ethnic ties, if you're a first, second, third generation out of any one of those groups within the diaspora, essentially you're counted as somebody who is a cricket fan. Whether so or not Patrick Ewing is counted and you're not, is what we currently say. <laughs> Patrick Ewing. Andrew Wiggins. I'm trying to think of other... F- ben Simmons, Andrew Bogut, when Andrew Bogut was still in the US. All, all these guys. All the basketballers. And, you're, and not <laughs> you. I mean, it is ra- random. I remember... Um, do you remember this thing? I, I don't think you were in America at the time, but I did a tour of America for uh, some uh, project I was doing with Crick Info at the time. And when I went around, I ended up in New York and the New York Police Department had released terrorist hotspots. And on those terrorist hotspots were where cricket fans were catching up to watch cricket games because that's where Pakistanis and, and a few Afghanistanis at that stage were going to watch cricket. And I remember going to one of those places and showing the guy that he was on this hotspot list and him looking at me going, what? And I said, do you like cricket? And he goes, sometimes it's on the TV in the corner. My father's Pakistani. And I was like, that guy is in the 30 million. And again, you're not in the 30 million. That's my point. So we know that there are people there But we also know that every second cricket tournament or, you know, cricket league has struggled for numbers, hasn't it? Like uh, over the last 20 years, you might get a bunch of people to a CPL game one year when it's a novelty. Next year, no one turns up. Those sorts of things happen a lot, don't they? I remember somebody with a CPL in 2018. That was the third year of the CPL. And that was the year that basically they were on the verge of pulling the plug. And they did. They haven't been back to the USA since 2018, pandemic or no pandemic. And... What he said was, when I was asking him about the crowds that year, now for context, yeah, you said first year, CPL 2016, novelty factor, you had six matches that year. They had a Thursday and a Friday match, and then a Saturday-Sunday doubleheader. The Thursday-Friday matches might have drawn two or 3,000 people, I think, and then the Saturday-Sunday doubleheaders 
were essentially sellouts. And for a sellout at, at the stadium facility in Lauder Hill, that would mean between 10,000 and 15,000 people, depending on what they wanted to cap the facility. It's basically a, a flexible capacity facility where they can add or subtract bleachers for the extra capacity based on anticipated ticket sales. And so I think it was capped at 10,000 that year. And they sold out the doubleheaders. But the in-person experience was quite miserable because there's no shade for a large chunk of those seats. And is that a problem in Florida? Just a little bit. Might be here and there. But the bigger issue, why am I saying there's no shade? Because they're playing these matches as early as they possibly can at either 1030 in the morning or 12 o'clock noon to satisfy the Indian TV audience over in Mumbai. Okay, so who are these matches actually for? If you're trying to claim that you're organizing these matches to grow cricket in America, oh, we want to bring these matches to Florida because cricket is such a wonderful sport and we know there's fans there and we want to help grow cricket in America and we're doing our best to provide great quality, high entertainment cricket in person, blah, blah, blah. Then why are you scheduling those matches at 1030 in the morning or 12 o'clock at noon instead of at 730 at night in a stadium facility that does have floodlights, you could play these matches at night if you wanted to. If you really were trying to engage the local community, like you would schedule every other sport in the summertime in Florida for 7 o'clock at night, after the sun is set, when it's not nearly as oppressive in terms of the heat and humidity in that part of South Florida. But no, they're putting these matches in the daytime in the sweltering heat and humidity, where it's 90 plus degrees Fahrenheit and about 70 to 80% humidity. I've gone out into the boundary on some of these days and with my photography, I'll, I'll shoot photos for people who aren't aware. In addition to writing reporting, I shoot a lot of photography at cricket matches. So I'll be there with my monopod at one of these games in, in Lauderhill in Florida. And by the 10 minute mark, I'm shooting with my arms like this with the monopod. And all of a sudden I can feel my foot starting to get really wet. And I look down and it's the sweat from my arm and my elbow dripping off my elbow onto my foot because it's just so ridiculously humid and hot. That's how it gets. And that's after 10 minutes. Now imagine sitting out there for three plus hours in the heat. It's unbearable. So what happened? The attendance by year two and then year three, it went from a sellout down to 2,500 for the first matches in 2018, which involved Trinbago Knight Riders. And then it went all the way down to 700 for a midweek match involving the Barbados Tridents, which at the time had Steve Smith during his exile after Sandpaper Gate, and Andre Russell with the Jamaica Tallwest. Those are the, the featured attractions. Now, how can you say that Cricket America is truly popular, truly growing, if you've got two of the biggest draw cards, two of to the most bankable stars in terms of ticket sales or viewership, and they're only drawing 700 people? And how do I know there were 700 people? It's because I spent the first three overs of the match walking around the stadium hand counting the 700 people in the stands. It wasn't that hard, okay? And so I asked one of the officials afterwards, and he said, I think we're starting to discover that America, in terms of the cricket market, is a television cricket market, but it's not really a ticket buying cricket market, unless you've got India. And again, the, the point with India, everybody keeps bringing, oh, if you had India and Pakistan and New York, India, Pakistan, and Florida, San Francisco, you'd have 50,000 people. Well, no shit. If you had India, Pakistan at Lords, you'd sell it out. If you had India, Pakistan at the MCG, you'd sell it. If you had India, Pakistan in, in Sweden, in Uruguay, it wouldn't matter where it is, they would fly in. That's not a problem. It was my, and like you said, going back to your early point, where you, you go to these matches and all you meet are people from America. The Cricket World Cup in 2015 in Australia and New Zealand, the ICC data from that event, the ticket sales data, they had more ticket sales sold in terms of overseas visitors. The USA was the number one ticket buying country for that World Cup. 
That, and that shows you again where the money is. Okay. Mm. You've got people who will pay big money. And it was like that in the 2019 World Cup as well in England. More people from America flew into England. More people from America flew to Australia and New Zealand to buy tickets for the tournament than any other overseas country. Yeah, of course, number one, you're going to have the domestic ticket sales. But in terms of overseas visitors, everybody's coming from America. That's where all the money is. That's where all the South Asian community has money. And so you look at the figures. So when India has come to Florida, same thing. Those India-West Indies matches, they sell out. You're never going to have trouble selling out India anywhere. India-West Indies in 2016 and 2019 was jam-packed, sold out. But the true measure of whether cricket in America is really succeeding is three weeks or four weeks after that India-West Indies T20 series in Florida. You have USA playing Papua New Guinea with USA making their very first home international match in ODI cricket. And you went from having 13,000 people sold out in Walter Hill at the same venue to four weeks later, you had 19, one at nine people in the stands for USA. Nobody cared. Nobody cared. How is it possible to have that few people at a sporting event? It's remarkable. Um, they made it happen. <laughs> okay. So clearly that's not happening, but there is something happening with American cricket at the moment. So I'm not going to go through all the names because, oh my God, it is incredible how many players have recently moved to America or decided they're going to play for America or for a franchise, whatever. But I'll go through some of the big ones. Obviously, Corey Anderson, I think, is the biggest name player. World record holder with his 100 at one stage. Sami Aslam, very good Pakistani top order player. Dane Beat, the off-spinner from South Africa. Unmuk Chand, who played for, I don't know, what, three or four IPL franchises, never quite made it, but former Indian under-19 captain. And probably the most recent one, although he's had ties to America for a long time, is Liam Plunkett as well. Clearly someone is opening a checkbook here. Clearly someone is, like I read that, I, I can't remember if it was yours or Fedosa's Dane Pete piece. And in that, he was being offered which city he wanted to live in. It seemed like there was like money involved. And the major league, as you said, isn't starting till 2023. What sort of contracts are these guys on if they're not even playing any proper cricket yet? <laughs> well... The standard offer that I've been told by numerous, numerous sources is basically $70,000 per year, okay. somewhere in the neighborhood of, of US, seventy dollars to $80,000 per year on a guaranteed three-year contract, Okay, plus a new car, as well as rent-free or mortgage-free apartment or house, Okay, depending on the city you're living in. So the total compensation package is close to $300,000 for the three years. So that's okay. worth it. That's worth putting an investment in. If you're playing T20 cricket to get that kind of money, you have to be upper echelon or you have to be lucky. And you also got a probably a worse lifestyle than being on that kind of a contract. So for example, the South African players who've come over and the largest influx of contract signings has come from South Africa. If you look at the contracts that they're making in South African domestic cricket, this is basically twice as much money as a standard squad member is making in the South African domestic scene. And so it's very difficult to pass up. And with the changing regulations with Colpac and that window being closed in the UK, now a lot of these players are turning to the USA where these contract offers are being offered. And when I say that $70,000, that's at the low end. So if you get somebody like Un Chand or somebody with a bit more brand value in, in terms of the, the money that they contract from the Indian market or Corey Anderson, yeah, that's probably closer to 100,000. Yep. So they've been attracting a lot of players to sign. And their strike rate is probably below 50% because some of the names that have turned down or have not come over are e even probably more 
eye-opening in terms of the number of offers they've made. Are you about to give me all these names or are these? No, I mean, so so for example, I, I mean, Sohaib Maksud, who was just named in the Pakistan T20 World Cup squad, yep. they recruited him very aggressively because at the time he was not in the Pakistan international squad. And Sohaib Maksud was somebody who had come in and out of the USA to, to play in some of these pop-up T20 tournaments. So for people who don't know, the US cricket scene is flooded with these weekend, what I call pop-up T20 yeah. cash prize tournaments where you'll get a lot of players from the West Indies. Andre Russell comes in regularly. Gale has come in quite often in the past. Horan. Horan comes in, yeah, absolutely. All the players kind of at that level will come in, and they can make $10,000 in a weekend. Dwayne Bravo has come in, and a lot of, again, players from Pakistan. So Salad Maksud was one of these players who come in, and you can make $5,000, $10,000 in a weekend just uh, in a brown paper bag, whatever. Brown paper bag tournament, pop-up T20 tournament, right? And so Saleh Maksud was offered. They knew he had been in the U.S. and was potentially interested. They offered. He rejected. Blessing Muz Rabani is another name from Zimbabwe, who I know they were in discussions with. And Blessing, literally like weeks or maybe a month or two after what the conversations and negotiations fell through, I think he took a five-wicket haul or made a five-wicket haul in, in either ODIs or, or, or tests for Zimbabwe after their play resumed after the pandemic break. They've approached a number of players from Sri Lanka, because again, they're ripe. They're in the crosshairs mm -hmm. because of their historic contract issues and player pay issues in that country. They got Jehan Jayasri. It's a bite. But he was in a similar situation to Corey Anderson. You look at some of the decisions and why players have said yes, a significant number have been due to family reasons mm. and not just money. So Corey Anderson, his fiance, and I believe he may have gotten married since then from the time he got his contract. His, his fiance at the time is an American. Shehan Jayasriya, married an American of Sri Lankan heritage. Liam Plunkett, married an American. So you have, in numerous cases, the family and lifestyle reasons for why they're making this switch. But that's not universal. A lot of these guys are taking the money because it's just good money and you can't yeah. turn it down. So 270 to 300 grand for a league that doesn't exist yet. I mean, USA cricket doesn't have this money. All right, so this money has to be coming through the investment on the other side. But the hope is that a majority of these players will settle and eventually play for the USA cricket team as well, correct? I mean, they haven't said that outright, <laughs> but it's kind of like a wink, wink, nudge. Oh, well, if it just so happens that these guys spend three years in the USA and qualify under the ICC residency guidelines, well, we'd be fools not to evaluate them and consider them for selection for the USA national team. We're not going to ignore eligible players. So, so they won't necessarily explicitly say that this is a strategy for USA cricket, the administrators, but they understand they're not going to turn down players or look away from players. And the shame of that is that it's really to the detriment of local cricket and opportunities for local cricket and domestic cricketers and, and players who come over to the USA through these contracts, who is that motivating to get involved in American cricket? When Corey Anderson or Shehan Jayasri or Sami Aslam or Unmuk Chandra or Smit Patel is another one, Smit Patel, again, I would argue for family reasons, Smit Patel has been a green card holder, I think for more than a decade, the former ex-India under 19 wicketkeeper. He's been coming back and forth to Eastern Pennsylvania for the last decade in the Ranji Trophy offseason. His wife, I believe, is settled or he's got some sort of family that's settled in Pennsylvania. So he, again, Smith Patel was another one who recently signed who, for family reasons, that was a motivating factor. But the point is, when you sign all these players, who is it motivating? Who is being inspired to play for USA? 
It's not the kid in New Jersey. It's not the kid in New York. It's not the kid in Florida or Los Angeles or San Francisco or Dallas or Houston. Who is being inspired to play for USA is more guys from South Africa, more guys from India, more guys from Pakistan, more guys from Sri Lanka. And I, I know that because my inbox and Twitter and Facebook and, and other social media is flooded more and more by messages from players saying, you know, can I come play for USA? What does it take? What are the rules? How do I qualify for USA? What does it take? Can you help me get a visa? Please, sir, help me get a visa. I'm not getting messages from families in New York and, and New Jersey saying, hey, how do, I, how do I get involved and play for USA? And I hear that on the ground as well. When I go in and talk to players in the academies, you'll get one set of players who will say, oh, you know, this is fantastic. I love the fact that in my minor league franchise, I'm now getting to play side-by-side -side with Corey Anderson, or I'm getting to play side-by-side -side with Sammy Aslam because I'm getting to soak up and learn a hell of a lot in person and really improve my game just by osmosis and, and getting a chance to rub shoulders with them and, and seeing what they do and how they operate and how they approach the game. And it's really helped me improve my game. There is a subset of locally developed American-born cricketers who are feeling that way. There is also, though, a significant set of American-born, American-raised players who have played for the USA Under-19 national team in recent years who see the writing on the wall with all these players coming in from overseas and I, I can go back to a conversation with a player I had just recently in, in June or July, a recent under-19 player, USA under-19 player, who was very close, in my mind, to being picked for USA senior team. And he said to me, I'm putting cricket on hold to go finish my college degree because I put that off to go play for USA under-19. And I took some gaps to go touring and, and trying to pursue cricket. But I see all these guys who are being signed. And he says... I know what the deal is. I know I've got no shot. He's like, I'm 21 now. I'm not stupid. It's enough time wasted for me kind of trying to pursue this cricket dream. I enjoyed my experiences with USA Under-19. I don't regret having spent the time dedicating all the time with USA Under-19. But I know I need to go get a job and get a degree because there's no way in hell I'm playing for USA. I have no shot at getting a USA Central contract. I'm not going to be a big money player, a big money franchise signing in minor league cricket or major league cricket. And I can see that by the people that are signing from overseas. And so I'll just go get my degree and I'll try and get myself a six-figure job in tech or in banking or something else. And you'll see that a lot. Hmm. You see that a lot from players who just get very despondent and they say, well, what was the point of all this? Why did I invest all my time? And family members, the parents too, who were saying, well, geez, why are we spending... $500 a month or $1,000 a month on these cricket academies when there's no NCAA scholarship like there is for basketball or pursuing basketball or football. There's no four-year scholarship waiting for our kid. There's no central contract with USA or a contract with a franchise. What's the point? We'll move on to something else. And they do. And so you're losing... When these kids turn the age of 20, you're losing so many kids from cricket. Well, I mean, it is interesting. I mean, this has been a big thing with smaller nations. Well, going back to Australia, really, isn't it? The first Australian teams were basically half English as well. Um, and South African teams were basically English as well. It's always happened in cricket. I think we all want the sort of the magical Nepal or Papua New Guinea situation. But at a certain point, whether it be Ireland or even Scotland, there's players from overseas that have been very handy. But if there's no access to the local players coming through, that is where the problems certainly come in. You talked about before about the stadium in, in Fort Lauderdale. For Major League Cricket, they are doing something. I'm, I'm not going to be able to say this with a straight face, PDP. The Airhogs Stadium 
air hogs. Air hogs. I don't understand what an air hog is. Maybe it's a- it's a plane. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a plane or pilot. I mean, outside the stadium, they've got a big bronze statue of these like World War II. Oh, fighter so I thought pilots. it was a pig. It's not a pig. No, no, no. It has to do with aviation. Yeah. Thankfully, I was wondering if they were just throwing pigs outside the ground. Huh. That's a former minor league a baseball stadium that they are going to turn into a cricket ground. That is going to be the basis that the Dallas and Houston area is where they are really focusing their, uh, a lot of their attention on because of, uh, as you said before, there's a lot of South Asian money in that area, a lot of South Asian people in that area. Again, we've seen this again, Jay Pandya, who I obviously worked for at St. Lucia, which is a whole other story. And you've obviously had a few runners before. Every now and again, he pops up saying he's doing a billion-dollar stadium somewhere, and then uh, sadly those stadiums don't happen. Is this a realistic aim? to turn a minor league stadium into a cricket ground? It's a strategy that I think you might see more of in the future for a number of reasons. One, there's some complicated civic aspects of this where in terms of securing new land for commercial development use, it can be quite tricky and quite difficult. So for permit reasons or for zoning reasons, it's not like you can just do what Major League Baseball did and, and just do the, the Dyersville, Iowa, go convert the cornfield into the field of dreams and, and oh, everybody, it's, it's completely kosher. It doesn't work like that. If you're a rich private businessman, you can't just buy a plot of land and just say, oh, I'm making a cricket field. There's lots of permits and zoning and regulations issues and, and probably some brown paper bag distributions that you have to do for local politicians as well. Brown paper bag is, is a very significant player in, in American cricket history. And, and this is no different, Jared. So... If you can get a currently existing facility that has already gone through the whole permit acquisition process, it becomes a lot easier to then repurpose that for cricket. So that is part of why the strategy was employed to acquire the Airhawk Stadium. More than anything, I think, is for permit-related purposes. Because as far as I know, the plan is, is basically to spend significant amount of money renovating and repurposing the facility. And I think some people might see that and ask, well, why don't, what's, what the hell was the point of that? Wouldn't it be cheaper to just build a stadium from scratch rather than acquiring it and tearing it down and, and kind of building it back up again? And it has to do with the kind of local government politics that are involved. And because of that, and also you, you've got this perfect storm where because of the pandemic, a lot of minor league baseball franchises folded. Oh, Okay. You had, I think it was somewhere around 150 or so minor league baseball franchises before the pandemic. Because, for again, for people who are not aware of the major league baseball structure and, and the development pathway for major league baseball to get to the one of the 30 major league baseball franchises that you know you've got your Yankees and Dodgers and Mets and Giants and so on, Cubs. All those franchises have minor league systems where you've got teams when they draft players, they start off at single A and double A and triple A. So the pathway you go. A, AA, AAA, and then to major league level. But you might have, or a team might have three single A franchises. So you might have one in Florida. You might have one in a different league in the Midwest somewhere. You might have one in New York, depending on the time of the season. So it's not that each franchise has three minor league teams, one for single A, one for double A, and one for triple A, where then you would have, you know, basically... 180 minor league franchises. It could be 200, 300 minor league franchises that were in existence because of the different variations of single A ball. Okay. But because of the pandemic, all these operations for minor league teams basically folded. Minor league baseball teams are operated on the very, very 
thinnest of margins. Mm. It's very difficult to turn a profit. So they will have a, a your play-by-play announcer might also be the marketing rep, and he might also be an operations director. He's wearing many hats. Okay. So the point is, when the pandemic shut down a full summer of baseball outside of Major League Global, a lot of these teams folded. And a lot of these stadiums that were depending on the revenue generated by hosting minor league teams, all that revenue went kaput. Airhog Stadium is a perfect example that there are so many other stadiums around the country and franchises, minor league teams that folded. So basically, you've got these empty stadiums, sports real estate mm. that's just sitting there gathering dust. And the ace Major League Cricket crew swooped in, saw this tremendous opportunity. So baseball's loss in terms of venue availability could turn into cricket's gain, where that is just the first of what could be a half dozen to a dozen, if not more venues, whether that's in Atlanta or New Jersey or New York or California, where you've got what used to be a surplus of minor league teams. And now you've got no tenants because those teams have folded, ceased operations. And now cricket has an opportunity to go in there and pay for the use of these facilities. And that could be where you get more and more opportunities for ACE to convert what used to be baseball facilities into potentially turf wickets down the road. And especially that's a key strategy in New York and New Jersey. Again, where real estate in general is very scarce and very expensive. And so if you've got an existing stadium facility that you can convert that's not used, that's a golden opportunity for cricket. So this feels like there's actually money behind it in a way that some other times it felt like people were hoping there would be money there and were sort of half investing. There are smart people involved, people who understand the American cricket community more, people like Willow who've made money off it. For the first time ever, USA is governed by a governing body that is competent. I won't go massively ahead of competent, but competent. Ian Higgins was the former ICC lawyer. He's involved. Uh, Richard Doan is involved, who is, I think, one of the most important people in the history of cricket because of what he's done for associate cricket. So again, people who, you know, have been involved there, IPL owners, you know, I've talked to people, you know, in Silicon Valley who want to invest. There's money, there's facilities, there's players, even if they are imported. Is this different to all the others or in three years time, are you and I just going to be making jokes about all this on the internet again? Jared, whenever I get asked this question, my response is always, I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah. I'll believe it. Any of these leagues that are announced or planned, I'll believe it when I see the first ball bold. Now, the first ball was bold for minor league cricket earlier this summer. So that's exciting. Major league cricket, you've got all this money being invested in overseas signings, but there's still an awful lot of moving parts. And for example, Airhog Stadium, okay. The initial plan when they acquired that was to start breaking ground and begin renovation work in April or May of this year. Well, I went down there and I took photos. I went to visit the facility to see it firsthand in person. And it had not been touched since the last baseball game had been played before the pandemic. And so I started asking around, what's going on here? You guys made this major announcement in December of 2020. I went down there in April after the conclusion of the USA Under-19 Championships. And it's in a fantastic location. The new stadium where the Texas Rangers baseball team plays, Globe Life Field or Globe Life Park, is adjacent to AT&T Stadium where the Dallas Cowboys play. And you've also got a Six Flags theme park on the other side of the road. Okay. All at this big location, this sports and entertainment complex, I think it's called 
Texas Live or Dallas Live. I think it's called Texas Live. It's an incredible location, okay? And Air Hogs is literally a 10-minute drive from there. And Air Hogs is adjacent to Lone Star Park. Now, Lone Star Park is a horse racing track. And it's a, it's a very well-known, well-respected horse racing track. They, they host million-dollar stakes races there, okay? I walked in to Lone Star Park and introduced myself to the staff and said, hey, do you know anything about the, the plans to convert the facility next door to a cricket stadium? And they said, really? Cricket stadium? That's news to us. We don't know anything about that. And I started to be a nuisance to all the people who were trying to place their horse racing bets. And uh, as I do, when I go from city to city, I'll, I'll ask people on the ground, do you know anything about this cricket thing that they're playing? And I, I asked a half dozen people, one, now, this is this pot. So 16%, a higher percentage than the 30 million people that are claiming to watch cricket in America, if there's 340 million Americans. So, so one out of six, the gentleman said, yeah, yeah, I, I saw it in the local news. Yeah, I know, I know they're, they're planning to build a cricket facility there, but they haven't done anything. They haven't broken ground. And so when I left, I asked, what's going on? And I got the answer of, oh, there's permit issues and this and that, blah, 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 blah. We're hoping to break ground sometime later this summer, but yeah, you know how these things work in politics and yada, yada, yada. And, and uh, you know, we'll, we'll see how long it takes. So already there are hurdles mm. that are being experienced and you don't want to get too cynical, but we've been down this road before with other things where plans on the, oh, well, well, you know, Neil Maxwell couldn't get agreement from Gladstone Dainty to play cricket matches on artificial wickets. Then all of the, the board members shot down Neil Maxwell's approval and then other issues started. And then Neil Maxwell decided to go back to Australia and continue making money there, which is fine. But you have to understand the reality. It's not just a matter of snapping your fingers and waving a magic wand and, oh, you know, the league's going to start. So there are more positive signs than there have been in the past with regards to other attempted league launches. But 2023 is still a very long way away, Jared. So I'll believe it when I see it. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Jared. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Red Inca. There is more information on my guests available in the show notes, including their Twitter profiles, if they have one. This is the important bit, though. Please review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere, really. Share it on all the social medias and just get it out there. If you can, act it out in plays on your balcony with your loved ones. This podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon. So thanks to those who already do. And there is a link to Patreon in the show notes as well. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes everything sound better for your ears. And the theme tune is called The Prisoner by The Red Crickets. If you're enjoying Red Inca but want to know more about Fred Spoffer's moustache or the time Vizzy got stumped looking like a buffoon or any other great stories from Cricket's past, well, I have a history of cricket podcast called Double Century. This time we look at something that will please cricket fans around the world, except maybe from one country, because we're looking at the first time teams defeated England. It's a different kind of podcast series in that it's mostly narrated, but there will also be some key episodes that I'm interviewing the players involved. You can hear this by finding Double Century in your favourite podcast app.